Are you familiar with the Irish Forest and Woodlands Awards? It's where farmers and woodland owners are recognised for achieving the twin goals of reaping economic and environmental benefits of good forestry and farming. There's different categories, community woodlands, production forestry and the Chagask Farm Forestry Award, which was won by Kilkenny man Andrew O'Carroll in 2018. So what was the secret to his success? Well, it's the right tree in the right place. You know, it was the way it was stocked and the way it was doing, it was progressing. It was reflecting the fact that it was the the ideal site for it. And in promoting uh, forestry, this was kind of what could be used as a template for other farmers. And like I always say, you know, sometimes when people plant, people say, oh God, he planted the ground. But I think the best uh, compliment a person can get is when people match what you do, when when they go ahead to plant some themselves. And that's what happened in the locality. Other people planted and, you know, so it was, it's seen in all up across the Castle Corner Plateau. When you go up from here up, there is a lot of ground planted. So it it reflects well on on the potential of the ground. I've joined Andrew in his forest, which is predominantly made up of Sitka spruce, located up the hills beyond Paulstown in County Kilkenny. Ballygortine, which is about two miles up from Paulstown, and uh, you're in a plantation about 30 acres. We planted this in 2005. It's 80% Sitka and 20% diverse, and the 20% includes Japanese larch, alder and some ash that was used for visual screening on the borders of the plantation. By all accounts, winning the award was a very positive occasion. The award was presented at Ballygortin when a busload of people came to his plantation on a warm summer day to celebrate and learn from his forestry setup. The judging was a big day too. The judges were out and saw the stage the crop was at and it's also in the overall farming enterprise that we have that let's say we have 19, 20 hectares, roughly nearly 50 acres planted but a leased ground in its place better ground that was more amenable to uh, longer seasons grazing etc so they kind of liked that it wasn't kind of giving up on farming and putting all the ground into forestry and kind of semi-retiring or whatever so we we were lucky enough that we won the award and it was it was a a nice bonus as they say it was nice to be recognized for what we were doing because it wasn't always uh, forestry wasn't always looked at as a viable option whereas Everybody has a, well, a lot of people have a bit of wet ground, so it might give people something to think about. And, yeah. you know, it kind of, we were, we were delighted to get the award at the time. And, like, there was plenty of advice. Francis McHugh was involved with us at the time with Chagas and the planting and Michael Summers, the renowned uh, tree specialist, was very helpful as well. So we're lucky to have such professional advice in the area. Andrew is also a suckler farmer, so having that forestry advice in the early days was very important. The timing was good too. He had inherited a bit of land and the government were heavily promoting forestry at the time. Well, it was about 2003, 2004, there was a big push by the government trying to get farmers to plant private plantations. And we looked into it uh, with the encouragement of the men who owned the land here before I took it over and... It, it looked like a, a realistic possibility and a good way to go. The land here is high yield class for timber, but for agricultural purposes, it would be on the lower end of the scale. Uh, hard land to, to farm at times. Marginal ground is what it would be called. Difficult to farm, you know. It's, it's, you see the, the, the colour of the clay there up on the mounds of the roots, kind of yellow clay, sticky clay. Good summer grazing, but if you get a bad spring or a bad autumn, the the, the grazing season for agriculture is very short for livestock. Mm. 
so it is the trees soak up the moisture and they're quite happy here so we made a decision to plant it in 2005 and had no regrets and it's it's proven that it is high yield class it's, a, it's amongst the best growing conditions in the world for Sitka spruce. Here in Ballygortine we're on the end of the Castlecomer Plateau and that is recognised. It would be similar to the Golden Vale for dairying for cows. It's the best, some of the best potential of ground for Sitka spruce, which is the, the ultimate production model for forestry. Sitka spruce is grown in Ireland for its timber. To all intents and purposes, it's a crop, and like any crop, it's planted and minded and harvested, clear felled in this instance, once it comes to maturation, which is currently set at about 30 years. It also happens to be great at hoovering up carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gas warming our planet. Well, there's a lot about environmental and carbon and, and uh, climate change. Well, this here is the ultimate for storing carbon, short rotation. You could be talking about 25 to 30 years to clear fell in a Sitka spruce plantation in this yield crop. The, the potential is here. And the majority of the end product could end up in the, in the building industry. I think Paddy Bruton referred to it in, uh, in, in one of your previous programmes. So this could be in the roofs of houses, which locks up the carbon that's generated for generations. It's not released into the atmosphere. So on a 30-year rotation, I think the figure now, Michael might correct me on this, but approximately three tonnes per acre per year is taken out by Sitka spruce. Three it's tons a, of, carbon. of carbon per acre. It's, a, it's an excellent way of getting the carbon, sequestering the carbon. So quick rotation, get the carbon into the tree, cut it down the final product, put it into the timber industry, into housing, and lock up the carbon for generations, replant the ground, and get it back into it. It might have a, a bad name, Sitka spruce, but as regards carbon sequestering, it's the ultimate. The renowned Michael Summers, as Andrew referred to him, happens to be with us in the forest. Michael is a forestry advisor and he's come with his hypsometer, an instrument that uses trigonometry to measure the height of trees. Having what's called a permanent inventory plot within the forest makes it easier to carry out these measurements, which are important for a farmer to know, especially when it comes to managing and harvesting the trees. This plot has all the branches taken off of it to roughly two metres tall. And the objective of the exercise is this is his shop window. This is where he can see how he can manage the rest of the forest on. we can measure his trees, he can assess his productivity, he's not getting his eyes pierced out with the branches and over the crop then he can put in more of these if he so wish but like this will tell you exactly what's in the whole forest as it is and as you can see it's it's quite productive. Mm. The The top height here is 16 and a half metres so it's grown more than a metre every single year probably 8 class 28, 30 some place around that so it's putting on 28 uh, cubic metres per hectare per year which would be the value of about 1100 euros per hectare and uh, it's it's an extremely productive forest but at that the stocking is quite high here and because of that thinning really has to happen now. Thinning you may well be aware that to thin out the trees or even to clear fell the trees a farmer or landowner needs a license and before the thinning process, they also need to put in a forest road. Despite the fact that the Department of Agriculture are processing about 100 licences a week, there's still a backlog. 
which is a frustration for everybody and an issue that the department want to tackle. Andrew O'Carroll also happens to be Kilkenny's representative on the IFA's Farm Forestry Committee and there appears to be talk of solutions in this area. So there's a lot of talk that they're going to, well hopefully they will take the roadways and the tinning out of the licensing system, that it's natural proper management of a plantation and once you're given a license to plant it's passed for planting so you should automatically have that and then maybe get a license at Clearfell but that needs to be done in the worst of a way and like the targets are not being met like you've heard over the programs like it's the lowest rate of planting since the 1940s it's a terrible indictment of the system because never before was renewable sustainability carbon sequestering you know it's, these are all the buzzwords and we have the natural product here to do it we have the best country in the world to do it and yet compared to our european counterparts we have more obstacles put in our way like it's it's scandalous to think we're importing timber from eastern europe we're importing logs from scotland you know it and we have them here if they just free up the system and in the meantime Keep the small private forest owners in mind when issuing the licences, is the message from Andrew. They'll tell us that the, the sawmills have plenty of timber, but the quill to plantations were being prioritised to the detriment of the private landowners. Like the, the, They'll tell you, oh yeah, there was never more volume than last year. But the volume that's been got has been got from a small amount of large quill to plantations. The amount of private foresters or private landowners that were getting licences is very low. Because like the average farm plantation is eight hectares which is 20 acres and like Peppa Hackett the minister for the, that's responsibility for forestry has conceded that the future of planting in Ireland of increasing the planting is in the hands of private landowners of farmers. Quilts are not involved in any afforestation which is planting new ground so in order to reach climate change targets they're dependent on the goodwill of farmers and as I said earlier land is a finite resource and there, there is other options, economic options now as we go forward with cap changes, nitrates etc. Stocking rate, all farmers listening will understand what I'm talking about, if they don't reduce stock they have to farm more land. So if somebody has land that's available that they're thinking of planting and it's all mentioned about uh, tax-free etc there is other options for farmers they can set their land for five seven ten years and get a a a tax-free threshold and at the end of the time they can change what they do with the land up to now if we plant ground you have no choice when you when you sign the contract to plant there's an implied regulation there that when you clear fell you have to replant now it's a psychological barrier to people and I always say I said this to Jo O'Hara when she was on with Peppa Haggett talking about the McKinnon report it's a psychological barrier very few people once land goes into forestry it won't come back out but if only 5% took it out that's fair enough but it's, it's people don't want to make the decision for future generations there's no other crop you put in like if you have tillage and you say that's going to be tillage ad infinitum people wouldn't do it but no but with forestry you're, you're tied to that so there should be the flexibility there as I said it'd be a very small percentage but you, when you sign on the dotted line you, it's implied that you have to stay in the crop The Department of Agriculture will be aware of these concerns The agroforestry scheme is one alternative that may suit certain farmers loath to put big patches of land into forestry The Department have obligations under the Climate Action Plan to increase afforestation and have Ireland carbon neutral by 2050. Recognising the role of hedgerows as carbon sinks is also part of the Climate Action Plan, which may boost Ireland's carbon balance sheet. 
in Carlow and Kilkenny, I think rough ballpark figures, there's 50,000 acres of, of forestry in Kilkenny and there's 20,000 acres in Carlow. But when you take hedgerows in, in those two counties, added in, there was a survey done by Chagask in 2011, I think it was, and the figure for hedgerows matches the figure for forested ground in both counties, ballpark. So like you're up about 18-19% of cover with hedgerows and plantations in both counties. And there has to be some account taken of all that. Because like we have such a beautiful countryside with all the hedgerows compared to our European counterparts where you see vast plains of ground and no trees and no hedgerows. So like we have to get credit for that and maintain that. There's only three places in the world where you're going to find hedgerows. Ireland, Britain and Normandy in France. It's it's unique to the old Celtic uh, regions. But look, there's 660,000 kilometres of hedgerow in Ireland. It's a lot of hedgerow. Um, they were laid out back as far as the Normans. There's so many species that live in it. Uh, grassland species, high species, um, point of view of shelter. Like this part of the world, believe it or not, once upon a time was dairy country. You wouldn't believe it now, but uh, it was. Hence the hedgerows are higher here. And uh, they're a fascinating feature that we have. And there's loads of biodiversity in those hedgerows. Uh, it has been a, a phenomenal um, positive maybe over the last 25 years with the reps and the last schemes that have encouraged the planting of new hedgerows that were probably removed back in the 70s whereby we were just flattening everything. Whereby now we have it ball back and they're, they're, they're going away and it's an introduction to tree planting as well. Mm. Like trees to me if they're in forestry or they're a hedgerow or they're in the backyard a tree is a tree is a tree. And uh, we, we, we should be encouraging all areas of, of tree planting that will feed into our uh, rural economy. Mm. It's one of my joys in life is, is seeing really top-notch hedgerows and see how they evolve and, and what we've done with them, you know. Sometimes I'm seeing them, Michael, I don't mean to be negative now, but they're getting awful brutalisation they're cutting, are they? Well, like, maybe in some cases they might be coppiced. You have three different types of hedgerows, but the relict hedgerow is the one that we would say not to touch. Relict? relict because it's it, it's lost its dense space. It's an older hedgerow. If you cut it down, it simply won't coppice. So uh, we, we kind of keep those relict hedgerows, just fence them off and, and, and leave them alone. But uh, there's um, escaped hedgerows which can be improved upon. So like uh, we have different types of hedgerows is what I'm trying to make the point of. And uh, they may be cautious down to the book, but by and large, if it's white thorn, which is the predominant species in, in hedgerow, it will come back. Really? Yeah, it'll coppice. But if it's over a certain age and the moisture content is gone, it won't. So, but in certain cases, then you can lay the hedge and uh, there's different, look, there's, there's about 40 different methods of laying a hedge in England. By and large, we have the one here because it's just the systems that we have employed. We would have been encouraging maybe the cutting of new hedgerows down to maybe two inches and then cutting it back again the following year. Uh, I, I'd be of the opinion letting grown into a linear woodland and then lay it because you'll have a better hedge. But that's just my opinion upon it. Like, doctors differ and patients die. And while we're on the subject of dying, ash dieback comes to mind, especially in relation to hedgerows, but also in relation to landowners who sowed ash plantations. With his IFA hat on, Andrew feels that they were cut a bad deal. They listened to the call, they planted the ash in their plantations and then they got ash dieback through no fault of their own. Disease plants came in from Europe in 2012, I think it was. And they're left then with a crop that's becoming worthless. And let's say it was planted 15, 20 years with the, with the view of it being 
an income down the, the line, whether it's a pension or educate children or whatever, you know, for future generations. And suddenly it's gone from under them. They're left with a crop that's nearly valueless and they have to replant that. Now, ash went into what we'd call better ground conditions. So the options for that ground would be a lot more than on marginal ground. So I think an element of goodwill would have to come into some of those cases that like they'd be given the option of taking out the ash and reverting it back to agriculture. Or if they have to replant, the premium cycle should start again. The 15 years they should be paid because there's absolutely no income out of the crop for the first 15 years. This left a very bad taste in a lot of people's mouths and that's why there's so much talk about ash dieback. It has a detrimental effect on people's incomes. Mm. Um, at the end of last year and talking about there was a big underspend in the forestry section and the money was returned to the exchequer. Surely that was an opportunity to say, right, we have X million left. We'll use that to compensate the ash dieback section slowly but surely to make some initiative, be proactive rather than reactive. But like it's it's going to take a big push. There's massive potential in forestry in Ireland, but people have to be treated right and there has to be goodwill and the potential is there. It's sad to see that the potential is not being realised. According to Michael Summers, there's more potential in it than has been achieved to date. I do kind of bemoan the fact that there's really no processing facilities for the hardwoods we have. Bar for hurley ash, there really isn't an industry for, for the hardwoods. And you've seen over the series, there are some phenomenal hardwoods out there. So, like, we need to have a kind of developmental phase on the actual processing of the wood just as well as the planting of of the timber and to show that there are markets there and product utilisation as well and if you go to Scandinavia and you see they're making textiles out of wood uh, there's an awful lot of things to look forward to but there's an awful lot of lessons to be learned from the past and one of the things is the use of mixtures and particularly intimate mixtures that can grow together and the ash dieback disease has definitely taught us that that we, we should be concentrating an awful lot more on mixtures and mixtures that are compatible uh, here now we have Sitka spruce there are other conifers out there as you've seen in JFK and we have to have a kind of a, a balanced equation yes, this is the king of carbon but it might not be the best for biodiversity. So we can't just say one size fits all because it simply doesn't. But this is, I think it's the third best tree on the planet for holding carbon. Bear in mind that um, the sequoias are number one. Pinus radiata, I think, is in, in the second. But this is third. This, and and, and, and we, we, we give it bad press, or well, we don't, but we, we try to promote it as a, a, as a good, sustainable tree. But it, it just gets a lot of bad press, and it, it has been delivering. And like, there's no point in, in, in hiding behind the, the stool on this one. Like, tree planting figures are quite low, but forestry is also changing with that. And a lot of the queries we would have coming in now are of very, very small areas. So we, we, we need to be in tune with, with, with how the sector is, um, is evolving and what people's tastes are. I, I, I don't think we're going to see many more of these large plantings anymore because there are a lot of demands upon land. And like in 2015, with the removal of the milk quota, we saw a lot like this type of ground, if it wasn't planted, would be in a mapped acre now which whether you could farm it or not, you could show it as a mapped acre and write it off again, um, you're, you're, you're stocking. So like here it's providing um, 
a carbon store. It's providing um, the potential to house somebody. It's, pro- it's, it's providing a good income. And yet it can't be used for setting off other nitrates or um, issues that are on farms. So we, we have to have a kind of a whole farm approach, I think, to it. But ultimately, all that trading and offsetting doesn't really solve the problem that we're in at all, does it? Like no, it's, it's no, like no. It's 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 very hard to look up at the sky and you actually hear a, <laughs> a jet going overhead and you see the white plume out the back of it or whatever, and you say, oh yeah, well, sure, they can put as many as they like up there as long as they buy enough trees and say, well, we're carbon neutral. It's a bit of a... I don't know, I would be careful what I say about it, but like it is, it, it doesn't make much sense. No. They're still doing the damage. And once nitrates are still being emitted, conventional farming will also still be damaging the atmosphere. But if the amount of carbon Andrew's trees are sequestering was greater than the nitrates he emits, then he could very well sell his surplus carbon credits to offset the emissions other people put out. Whether he can do that or not, though, is a bit of a grey area currently. If, if I wanted to sell my carbon rights, they're saying, well, I can only sell it to somebody within the agricultural industry. But if somebody else has carbon rights, they're allowed to use it. So, like, there has to be a level playing field and, and we have to be open to the commercial reality of that we can trade it on the open market and maximise the potential of the income stream from our plantations. It's trust and the building of trust. It's the right tree in the right place. It's carbon, but not just carbon, it's biodiversity. It's building resilience against disease through mixed tree species. And it's having a future income stream. And on that note, landowners pay heed to Andrew O'Carroll and get Michael or someone else out with their hypsometer before selling your trees. A lot of people are coming to the to the stage where they're getting productivity out of their plantations, whether it's thinning or clearfell. And I couldn't overemphasise the, the, the point that to get independent advice and to know the value of the crop, because they get the one chance, especially at Clearfell, they get the one chance to maximise their return on their investment and know the value of the crop. Here's an interesting fact about trees. Ping-pong balls are made from cellulite which is a byproduct of the paper-making process. Cellulite is used in ping-pong balls because it is easily moulded and shaped, while allowing for the high-bounce property of the balls. Trees from seed to sawdust is funded by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine as part of the Woodland Support Project.